Thank you for joining us for the next hour or two in this episode of Insight Myanmar podcast. In an age of nearly limitless content, we appreciate that you're choosing to take valuable time out of your day to learn more about what is happening in Myanmar. It is vital for this story to continue to be heard by people around the world, and that starts right now with you. We're happy to bring you the following interview with a guest who's connected to an exciting upcoming event, the Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival. It will run from February 1st to the 13th and feature a wide range of films, documentaries, shorts, animations, and panel discussions. Nowhere else can one find so many diverse forms of media connected to Myanmar that are ready to be streamed in the privacy of one's home. While there's no charge to log in and watch these features to your heart's content, the film organizers kindly request that viewers consider contributing a donation of any amount. All the proceeds will be going towards humanitarian missions in Myanmar. In their own words, the events organizers write, These provide humanitarian assistance in Chin, Kachin, Karen, Kareni, and Shan states, poor ethnic areas most severely impacted by food insecurity and emergency shelter needs. Support will also go to freelance media and nonviolent human rights activists forced into Thailand. Know that your contributions will make a difference in Myanmar through enabling dedicated local organizations to courageously carry on grassroots work in a time of darkness. So if you're encouraged by what you hear from today's guest, we encourage you to take advantage of this special opportunity and take in a variety of film festival events. You can search for Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival to learn more or follow the links on our website. For now, let's get into today's interview. And that was a clip we just heard from the film documentary, I should say, 1,000 Mothers, that was made by the filmmaker Kim Shelton, who is our guest today. This is a film that will be part of the Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival, and we're here to talk about the making of this film and the content as well. So, Kim, thanks so much for joining us here at Insight Myanmar Podcast. Thanks for, so much for having me here. Yeah, so I, I want to start first, before talking about the actual film, talking a bit about the content and your personal interaction relation to it. Obviously, the film is about the life of a Buddhist nunnery in the Sagain Hills in Myanmar, that's outside of Mandalay. And so for you to make a film like this, it definitely seems to indicate you have some kind of interest in Buddhism or meditation, monasticism. And so I want to start off by just learning about your background in meditation or Buddhism and where uh, where this content was appealing to you to want to make a film out of it. Yeah, um, uh, it's kind of a funny story in that uh, I've been practicing um, 
probably, I don't know, 25 years or so. And it was before, several years before I made the film, I was in, I'd been in Myanmar before, uh, on a tour, a kind of a Buddhist tour with um, Temple Smith. Is that right? Is that his name? Yeah. Like, you have to cut that out. Uh, but anyway, we, we, I went back to uh, sit for a month at Shwayamin uh, with Utejaniya, and he had been the teacher, teacher of Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters, who are my teachers. So I was there for a month, and it was gr- pretty grueling in a lot of ways, and also wonderful, just physically difficult. Nothing was very comfortable there. Uh, on the, in the physical element and element in terms of the heat and uh, the food and just the things that we're used to in the West. And I, I, I know you've talked to people that have spent time at Shwayamen and other monasteries in Burma, so I, you kind of know that. But the highlight for me of that time there was um, spending time with this one nun who I had met when I walked up out to the front gate of the monastery one early one morning just to watch the monks leave on alms round. And there were these little, really small, maybe six, seven, eight years old uh, girls, some older girls with an older nun there first in line. And they came from a, a nearby nunnery. And, you know, Sue said hi, we waved, and then I struck up a friendship with one of them. And so I, every day I would go out there and we would just, we couldn't speak. We didn't know our, the language other than hi, and we'd hold hands and then go take a walk and then come back. And she would do the arms round or she'd try to give me the bowl to do the arms round for her. And it was, it was a joke, as I would say. Well, no, no, I don't want it. You know, she say, no, you, you get the merit. You put the, you, you do the offering first. I say, no, no, you do it. And anyway, we had this really sweet relationship. Now, so, so then what happened was, um, so I did this for probably three weeks every day, and then one day she wasn't there, and the next day she wasn't there, and then she wasn't there again, and then I was leaving soon, and. So I didn't know where I didn't know where she was from, and I kind of tried to have that conversation with the other nuns there, you know. That uh, however I did it, I, I still couldn't figure out where she, what happened. So, so before my husband and I were there together, before we left the monastery, we we went, we asked permission, and we walked out to all of the neighboring nunneries. And we did this for several days until we found her. And, uh, you know, it was really, really sweet. And I, I said, figured out, well, where were you? Well, I was in the hospital. You know, I was sick, and I bet I'm better now. And so it was just a really nice connection. And then I, I'm a filmmaker. I've been a filmmaker for a long time. I never once thought of a film at all. It just was my experience there. And I left Miramar. And several years later, just all of a sudden, just out of the blue, just came this thought of the question was, well, what about the nuns? And it, I just realized I should make a film because 
nobody knows really very much about the nuns. People don't know about the monks. The monks get a lot of what is given in that country in terms of the alms rounds and just money. But in the country, certainly, the nuns are second-class citizens. And people around the world didn't really know, don't really know about the nuns. So that, that started a whole long uh, uh, other odyssey of events. <laughs> so during, so I, I I decided to go back again. This is probably a year, you know, two years later. Thinking that, um, and and it wasn't. I didn't really want to do it. Make the film of the, in the same where where this friend was and her nunnery. I just wanted to open it up and and look at as many nunneries as I could, and I I got names of nunneries and contacts and translator. And I just went with the attitude of um, the film is going to show itself or not. In other words, something will just spark for me that I will then go ahead and make the film or I'll decide not to make it. And and either way, it was a relief, uh, I mean, in my mind, because I was also thinking, this would be really hard to make a film here. <laughs> so it's like... I'm not sure I want to make a film here to go through all those hoops. And so this is kind of my, what my brain was saying. And then my heart was really pushing, you know, leading me. So I looked at 11 uh, nunneries. And most of it were in um, Yangon and out, outskirts of Yangon. And then the one that I ended up filming was in, in Sagain, and that was the last one. And what happened was, I looked at all these nunneries, took a couple weeks, and there was just something that wasn't right about each one, and maybe it was the nunnery was too close to a road where the noise was really loud, and I just couldn't, we would never get quality sound, or the, um, I had none, I could tell one would not let me, you know, I could just have this feeling I wouldn't be able to do very much in this nunnery because they were very restrictive or there's just, just things in each one. And so finally, when I, I flew up to, with a meta translator, flew up to, uh, uh, to uh, Mandalay, went to Sagain, walked up the driveway of the film of where I did make the film and sort of walked up the driveway, turned the corner, and then I just knew that this was a place, you know, it's just one of those things. So um, so that's how it happened. You know, that's how I found myself in the nunnery in uh, Sagain. Mm, that's great. And so you said you'd been coming for years before making this documentary to meditate under Sayyidah Utejaniya in the Shwayuman tradition. And it was through being there that you learned about uh, or you thought about the possibility of doing a documentary like this. Just to put this in a specific time and context, uh, roughly uh, when were you coming to meditate at Shwayuman and then when did you um, have the idea to go and start filming and, and actually begin the production? swam in it in like 2010 and then we finished the film was made finished in um is that right i don't know 2010 2011 they finished the film in 2016 something like that i don't know it's hard to yeah yeah so it and, it, and of course it it takes a long time to make a film um it took several years and then but i didn't 
after I left SWIM and I didn't, it was several years before I even thought of even making the film. And then it took another year to get all, everything organized and just to be able to go there. And then another year to actually get the people and the money to go back. But uh, one thing that happened that was really interesting is I, at the end of the shoot, uh, we were there for 10 days, uh, the main one of the head nuns, the one who um, was the most talkative and the most friendly, and she just kind of led us around right from the get-go. And I met her when I first went there, and then, of course, I met her when I went back and made a connection with her. And she's probably in her 40s, and there were, there were sort of two active head nuns, and she was one. And at the end of the shoot, which was, you know, it was pretty disruptive for us to be there for them, and and um, I, I said to her, and we were all, this is all through a translator, of course. Um, well, do you, like, did you think I was going to come back and make this film? Because, you know, here's this, I'm this woman that shows up and says she's going to make a film. And, you know, then, then a year later, I show up again with these other people to make the film. And she said, did, did you really think that that would happen? And she laughed and she said, oh. Of course, she said, I knew the moment you walked up the driveway that you were going to make the film the very first time, you know. And I said, what? what? How, did, how did you know that? And she goes, well, you looked at me and you knew I was your mother, you know. And I went, oh, well, I, I of course, had not thought of that or even considered any of that, but I, there was something that was pulling me to go there. And she said that, and I was sort of, whoa, that's interesting. Um, so that was, there was something that was pulling me there, and who knows, who knows what. Yeah, that's quite magical. And, of course, this whole story is taking place in the context of the democratic transition. That's why I was asking about the dates, because this is yet another uh, thing we can see, that the, the openness and the relaxation happened during that time that so many of these projects and explorations, intercultural communication was able to happen and flourish as it did here and create these moments that are just really quite magical and special. And just looking at how it opened up the possibility of Buddhism for those in the country as well as those that were able to come and access it and not only have benefit one way from being given the teachings, but also benefit in terms of various kinds of projects that one was able to take on to make it reciprocal and bring this out. And that that's the next question I want to ask is looking at what kind of uh, what you were trying to bring out from the nunnery experience. You've obviously been to Myanmar many times before. You've spent time living in monasteries, being at nunneries and meditation centers as well, and learning experientially, not just as a, as a tourist, but actually um, being a member of the giving community, the, the, um, the Donna community, the practicing community. And so you, you've, you had some kind of experience as a participant in the system. And so obviously there was some kind of story you wanted to tell about the basic nunnery experience. And that story is told both through interviews uh, with the various nuns that are there, as well as w through uh, simply filming their daily routines. But what was it that you wanted to impart about nunnery life to the outside viewer who might not have ever had an experience inside a Burmese Buddhist nunnery, let alone in Myanmar itself? Yeah, well, you know, really it was... Um just a, an exploration for myself 
and my own curiosity because I didn't know what I would find, and I was curious. I, I wanted to know what what is their life like? What does it look like daily? Uh, what and and I was really hoping they would be able to be to to, to speak with me personally. Um, and and what are they thinking? And how long have they been here? And what are they going to do next? Are they always going to be here? Just all these questions that I had about these women who had chosen this life. Um, so I, I just started with, I think, my own curiosity and just really wanting to find out and then be able to share that. And then what did you learn? If that was the curiosity that was driving, taking on the project, what did you learn through doing the interviews, through putting everything together, through all the filming? Yeah, well, so many things, you know. I, I mean, I think the um, one thing that really amazed me about uh, this nunnery, and it's true, I think, for most nunneries, is that they really are a place for young orphan girls. So the nuns will go back to their villages and find girls that need an education, that the parents are really poor, can't, can't give them very much, and then they bring them back. And so that's definitely what happened in this nunnery. Um, that, that was just really beautiful to see because they, they would come, come there and they would all have uh, different dialects. They couldn't really um, speak with each other. And it took a while and they would be missing their parents or, you know, just, I spoke with some of them that just had different experiences when they first arrived. Some where I want to go home and other ones, you know, they felt instantly like they should be there. And, and then it was interesting around age 14, 15 was the time where they, the girls usually, some, many of them started to question, uh, do I want to stay here or do I really, is this the rest of my life? Do I want to, maybe go and get married and have children and wear makeup and jewelry or so that was also an interesting uh, thing to observe and to talk to some of the girls about and then the ones that were just there and some of the older ones that were that was their life it was uh, really inspirational and also their dedication to practice was so strong and you know, for them, their practice was not so much meditation. I mean, yes, they did meditate and they did chant, but their practices, their um, their uh, daily life, really, and their conduct and their behavior and their generosity, just which is just everything that they do. I think they and you see that in action. Certainly, how they how they. Yeah, certainly how they treated us, because um, I asked also at the end, I said, um, well, I asked in the film, I, you know, I said, was it disruptive? And she said, yes, <laughs> you know, they're honest. Yes, it was disruptive. But when someone really wants to know about Buddhism, we want to tell them. And, you know, that's just their, their dedication to their practice and to Buddhism and to spreading what Buddhism is to people that don't know. And they would do things like we'd have an interview and then of course there was lots of external sound and they were having some work done and there are these men cutting rebar, which was really loud. <laughs> and so sometimes we would wait for their break or their lunch and then we'd do the interview and then 
the nuns caught on that the sound was troublesome. So they would go out and tell the workers to take a break. And finally, when I realized that, I said, no, 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 I'm sorry, you know, they have to work. We don't want to disrupt you that much. But they would just do, do anything to be able to have us fulfill our goals. And that was that was really amazing to be and have that experience. Yeah, there's a lot there that's really valuable to unpack and look at. I appreciate how you were able to unpack and examine their what you refer to as their dedication to practice and the nuanced way you talk about it. Because I think as a Western meditator coming from Western meditative traditions, it's very common for us to delineate the formal practice time from the rest of daily life. And as I started to spend more and more time in Myanmar, and I did my own projects at the time to lead pilgrimages and write some guidebooks and uh, give presentations in the West as well about um, my experiences and research and living there, I, I would find I would get a litany of questions that the questions were coming from one place where they had to be and had to actually be unpacked before they could be answered because they were they were coming from a set of assumptions and practice that was very different from how it was in Myanmar and one of those questions was how many hours do monastics meditate every day which to a western meditator was like a very straightforward obvious question well i meditate 2 hours i meditate 1 hour in the morning 1 hour in the evening how much do they meditate and those, that question always troubled me. I understood it was coming. F- I understood the place it was coming from, which was fine and made sense. But it, it was just very difficult to answer. And it took me years to be able to parse out, as you did, all the different things that go into the monastic life: the following, the vinaya, the the dana, um, give, both receiving and and giving dana, and the protocols in which is done, the chanting, the. Uh, some of the other ritual or ceremonial aspects, the um, the study, uh, every, everything else that goes into it. And I would try to break down how this question is uh, because of the the way the practice is is integrated holistically into a greater live life. Uh, you, you can't simply ask uh, a, a numerical question: How many hours is this practice being done for? You have to break down and then look at. Well, if you're if you're if you talk to monks when they're on their alms rounds, many of them are practicing thirty minutes, sixty minutes intensively of metta the entire time that that they're they're on the alms round. So is that is that included as a medita- quote unquote formal meditative practice? And the more you start going into this nuance, this kind of question itself breaks down, which is really a wonderful learning moment in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing I really, that that they said, and it was obvious that you could just watch, was how the, the, the girls looked up to the, the head nuns, and, and, and even just the nuns just a little bit older than, than them, the ones that had been there longer, and they'd they looked up to, they watched them, they looked up to whatever they did, and they, I would, they would say, uh, they would name people and just say, I, that's, that's my role, role model. She is who I want to be. I strive very hard to be like her. Uh, you know, I want to have my ethical conduct and my, my, um, everything that I do, I want, I want to be that good. And then, and, uh, it, it just was coming from such a, um, a place of, uh, just it was heartfelt. I think that was the word, you know. I, and another thing that I also wondered about was, were these nuns, uh, you know, will what will there 
are they going to let their guard down? Are they going to be a little playful? Am I going to see them um, just as regular people ever? Um, you know, and and I we did. I think they just they just um, really were so much fun in terms of uh, oh I don't know just laughter and kind of joking around. I think that the word is really light, light the lightness of their beings because they just they just carried everything with them, um, and and that extended to us. You know, it's just this welcoming us generosity towards us and just sort of. Just, just loving that we were there, you know, and we could be anyone. It wasn't personal. It was really, we were there and they were going to serve us. Uh, yeah. That was what one of the, um, one of the things that we would joke about is that, of course, they didn't have very much money, but they wanted to feed us breakfast, uh, you know, every morning. And we had to say, we, of course, ate breakfast elsewhere and we'd come in. And the food would be there. They put it out, and we'd say, "No, please, you know, we've already eaten. You know, we know you want to give us some food." And because, of course, that's there, Donna. And we'd say, uh, "We're so full, we can't eat any." And then finally, we just we worked it out. Sort of, we we knew that they needed to just do that for themselves. They 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 had to do that. And so we say, "Okay, um, maybe just the peanuts and some hot chocolate or whatever it was." We 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 let we just went through the ritual of coming in and sitting down and, you know, having a drink or do something before we ever did anything. And it was, it was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the film really does represent an authentic look at the feel of a working nunnery and the different types of people that are there without necessarily exotifying them, which I think is so important when a Westerner is trying to come into a, a live spiritual practice anywhere, but especially in Asia, that, um, that you're able to tell the story from their point of view. There's no Western protagonist or uh, or a foreign person who the story is being told through. The, the, if I remember correctly, the entire documentary is, is in Burmese with English translations, and we're just seeing their life live out. And, and we're also seeing, the as you um, suggested just earlier, we're seeing the dynamic nature of the different characters there, that it's not, uh, it, it's not trying to represent these as one-dimensional spiritual figures from a 2,500-year-ago cutout that they're just fitting into. But yes, this 2,500-year-old tradition is guiding and informing uh, their spiritual life and is the heights they're looking to achieve. That's very clear. And yet there's also dynamic personalities within that uh, that are that are at different stages of what they're trying to achieve, as well as those that are their interests are being competed with uh, in terms of the material world. And you referenced a bit earlier about the, the younger younger nuns that were tempted by some of the things in the material world and actually in your documentary there's a, there's a scene of a uh, a one of those nuns who actually decides to disrobe and references how she likes to wear makeup she likes to wear these different clothes and you see her come back to the nunnery and have a series of interactions with her her former nun sisters as, as they're debating and talking about the spiritual and the worldly life side by side and it's you know it's it's i, I think what i really appreciated about it is it's not coming down and trying to say from a top-down perspective how one should be living or how uh, didactically trying to explain 
what the nun's life should be and what it is, but it's actually depicting authentically what it is as these things play out and this very human drama and element taking place that I think is, and I think this is quite challenging for Westerners sometimes to understand because we don't have really anything like a monastic tradition normalized in our society. Of course, there's Christian monks and there's even some Buddhist monks in our midst, but it's not anything like in Myanmar. And so to try to bring out this real world drama and dynamic of what it's like to choose a life that is in the world, in the, the, the sufferings and the pleasures of the world with a partner, a family, uh, money, um, things you can, you can own and how you can live versus a renunciate life of none of that. And yet a simplicity that might fill more than worldly pleasures can. That's a really hard decision to make and a, a really hard set of, of, uh, of options that, that one has. And so I think in those moments when that dynamic is present, it's really interesting to see how people within that society, even at that age, are wrestling with and understanding the choices they have in front of them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, one of the things that did, did surprise me was when they do their alms round, they, they had to take a bus about an hour away because they could not do their alms round right around their, the nunnery because that was the area reserved for the monks to do their, their alms round. And sometimes they would also go into Mandalay, and I know now that they, um, with just the, the way the government is and what's going on there, uh, that they can't go to Mandalay, and I, I don't actually know what's happening in the nunnery right now, the translator. I, I think is in Yangon. She's a German woman, but but I don't I don't really know. I know she's probably keep, keeping a low profile wherever she is. But um, so so that surprised me is they had to take this bus, these little buses, and go these little uh, teeny buses go far away, and that uh, I don't think I realized that all they got was rice, dry rice. Whereas the men and the boys, when they go on their arms round, get hot food and, you know, a big thing of rice and cooked rice and just sort of a great looking meal that they can go home to. But the nuns did not get that. Uh, so that's in the film also, uh, that whole that whole part. And I think that, that I, I remember asking one nun, was there anything that she felt was kind of the most, or what did she feel was the most challenging part of being a man? And she did say the arms round. Uh, just going and doing that, not knowing if they were going to get enough food and how far did they have to go and was the area where they went, was that area going to be open to them and were there going to be monks in that area also looking for food? So uh, just the not knowing, I think, for them, was just, it's really hard. It's not guaranteed that they're going to get exactly what they need. And how did they understand that in their own thinking? I, I know you have an interview with one nun in there who fervently wishes that in the next life she'll be reborn a man so that she can have better conditions. But did you find that there was a sense of unfairness or a sense of what they could do to try to try to bring about a greater just equality? Or was there was there some kind of acceptance or understanding in a social, religious, political kind of sense of, uh, of how things were divided and how, wh how wh what was their thinking in, in looking at the obvious uh, yeah. inequity between the monks and nuns? Yeah, 
They, it was really the only, the only the one nun who wanted to be a man and voice that. She was the only one that voiced anything like that. The rest were, it was, it was kind of like, well, this is the way it is. Um, and they did not, I didn't hear them, they didn't really complain about it or compare themselves to what the monks got and what they didn't get. They, they didn't, they didn't, I don't even know if I asked them directly, but I probably had an open-ended question about what I noticed, I don't remember, but they they never went there and said anything about what we don't get compared to what the monks get, except for the woman who wanted to be uh, come back as a man so she could be a monk, and she was not happy. Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's take another listen to a clip from the film One Thousand Mothers. <laughs> ยอมจะดีเกษตรสุราดิเลชินวามาทิ้งนะแค่สมัยบ่เนาะยกเปลี่ยนเลยไอ้ราจารย์ยาซุงสกุลนะเซเนสังหาจามายาซุงจะได้
I, I probably has a lot to do too with, uh, you know, the camera woman who has had Kristen Johnson travels and shot films all over the world just has a really great rapport with making people feel comfortable in front of a camera. And um, although they did not really know what a camera was in terms of a big camera. <laughs> and in fact, the funny story was I, I, one of the other questions I asked as uh, at the end of it, I said, did, did you think it was going to be like this? You know, that we would be doing multiple days. Which I said, I know I told you it would be 10 days, but you know, you just never really know what that means. People, people don't really understand, of course, what, what the production of a documentary takes. And she laughed and she just said, I thought you were just going to come with your cell phone and just kind of, you know, sh put it out and like, take photos of things and that's what I thought the film was going to be you know which is really I mean we all had the best laugh about that because obviously that's not what happened you know it was the camera and the sound person and the translator and me and and then the translator you know she Petra was very good in terms of sometimes I would just say um don't don't turn around and, and you know if you feel like there's a flow with the conversation don't translate, don't give me everything back. You know, just don't break it, don't break the flow of something. Because I said, you know you know what I want to ask. We had a good connection and um, just keep it going. So sometimes that happened and then she'd tell me later or when it was okay to take a break and she'd say, this is what happened. And then we'd go in the next direction. But, um, you know, we the, the there's a meditating nun there, the one that we, she meditates in a cave and she'd been doing that for three years, and we I didn't think she'd want to be interviewed, but she did, and it was very interesting. Uh, she, she would answer a question and then close her eyes and just to sort of go into like this deep samadhi or something, and just really still, and the first time she did that, the camera woman and the sound woman just like looked at me like, what's going on? Is she okay? Because <laughs> you know, she just sort of just got really quiet and left. I said, yeah, I think she's fine. We asked the next question. She just slowly opened her eyes, answered the question, and then just closed her eyes again and went back. And then sort of that's how the interview went. But um, they were not used to seeing that at first. <laughs> mm, that's wonderful. And I think that also illustrates how you being a participant in that Buddhist culture, even if you're not Burmese, gives you a certain kind of comfort and confidence in knowing how meditation can play a role, even in the midst of one interview, as someone checking in with themselves, even as they're as they're talking to you and uh, and taking that time out for themselves. Uh, after you did the filming, I assume that, and you produced the film, I assume that the nuns and the nunnery that were involved that they eventually got to see it. Uh, do you know anything about the reception and their, their thoughts on watching this completed work? Yeah, I actually took the, the film back to them and I took it, uh, the, the translator and my husband and I went, you know, several years after we had finished it and we had a little projector and we projected it onto the wall in the, in the nunnery it was just a great scene, you know, because we had to get all these blankets and things to cover up. The, it was daytime. We had to cover up the light coming in, and it still wasn't, it wasn't very dark. But um, so it was big. They'd never, ever seen anything big that was 
I mean, not big like movie theater, but, but I don't know, 10 by 10 feet, 12 by 12 feet or bigger. Um, and they just were silent and just so involved with like watching it. And then, and then afterwards they said, could we see it again? <laughs> and they wanted to see it again. And then they just were very, very happy about it, um, what they saw. And one girl, one of the girls who, um, she was interviewed, I think, several times, but she came up to me and she was learning English so she could speak a little English. And she said, I just cried through the film. I don't know why. You know, it's really touching. I said, well, you know, it's, it's probably really moving for you to see your life reflected back to you, all of you. And um, so, yeah, taking it back was sort of a, one of the highlights of the whole experience. Mm, that's great. And uh, another thing I'm wondering about, you, again, you're coming not as an outside filmmaker who's looking for a subject. It's the other way around. You're actually coming for your own meditative experience. And while you're in the midst of it, you have this idea you want to make a film about what spiritual path you're on that relates to that, these, the, the, the nun's life. And so looking at that interaction as you, as you make preparations to do the film, you shoot the film, you have years of post-production, and then it's completed, did this whole experience and process do anything to inform your own meditation, your own spiritual practice? Did, did you learn anything in the, in the meditative or spiritual realm from your work? Oh, uh, you know, I, I have so many things. It's like, um, I think... I don't even know where to start with that. In terms of my own practice, um, I, I think what I really learned from that from them was what, what I learned. I learned a lot about generosity, and and not and just generosity of heart and openness, and how to be at least from by example, and then with working, you know, working with the footage for a year and a half and just just their words and their images just be flooding me for that long a period. And, and I worked with an editor and the two of us together. You can't help but be affected by just, it's just this benevolence and just this uh, trying, you know, trying to, um, to cultivate the heart qualities and just uh, live the heart qualities. So I feel like, I feel like they they like injected me with sort of a baseline of that, and then of course, you know, I fall off the wagon. How do I really live this that way in my own life? But it, um, like some of the younger nuns said about the older ones, you know, they gave me they gave me something a gift in order to see how I could be in the world, and that's you know forever grateful for that. That's wonderful. And it, it's also remarkable to mention that you're talking about these deep spiritual life wisdom lessons that you're learning from largely a group of teenagers that you're talking to. Obviously, you're speaking to people of all different ages, but many of them are, are quite young. And so you're talking to, about learning these profound lessons from people that don't have a lot of years, at least in this life on, on this earth. And yet they're through working with the material over and over, the 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 way that they live their life and what they're aspiring to is uh, is, is is impacting you and teaching you on such a profound level. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely true. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
Well, I definitely encourage viewers not just to watch the film, but to watch until the very, very end, because the last scene is actually my favorite scene in the documentary, and that's where it's kind of this meta behind the scenes, um, uh, breaking down the fourth wall of uh, of the filming, and there's a question to one of the head nuns about if if this was disruptive to their their life pattern and she answers quite honestly like yeah it was really disruptive there are cameras everywhere we couldn't really live with the according to the kind of discipline we're used to but then she kind of pauses and says something like but you know it's it's all worth it because we uh this is allowing this these precious teachings and this way that we're molding our life to these teachings to be able to reach an audience we never could on its own. So to put up with this disruption in order to share and spread that message is is really worth it. And that hit me because I had almost a, 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 an identical conversation uh, years ago when I was at Mahagandion Monastery uh, in Amarapura outside of Mandalay. And this is one of the most famous monasteries in the country, both to Burmese as well as to foreigners for different reasons, I should mention. Mahagandion Sayadaw was one of the great academic monks of the 20th century who uh, really tried to revise and um, and work uh, and rework the whole monastic education system. Uh, and yet for foreigners, somehow the Mahagandion Monastery has become like the monastery that every uh, tour stops on, not of pilgrims or pilgrimages, but just of normal tourists. And so the lunchtime is kind of a circus there. There's literally hundreds, sometimes over a thousand uh, tourists of just busloads that get off that just take pictures of every aspect of these monks lining up in their processions. It's listed in Lonely Planet. It's been referenced in National Geographic and so many other places. But it's it's really just become this kind of chaotic circus at lunchtime where uh, at, at this very traditional, uh, educationally minded monastery. And when I was writing about it and researching it for a meditator's guide, I wrote, I was speaking to some of the monks there and I was asked, I asked the same question and they basically gave the same answer. They said that, uh, yes, it's very disruptive and, uh, it's not really what we like as we're lining up. But one of them added something like, you know, if, this for for many tourists that come from Europe, from China, from Japan, from the U.S., this might be really one of the only times in their life that they have an encounter with a monastic, with a a, a Buddhist monastic following the Vinaya and the tradition of the Buddha. And if even this one moment of interacting with a monk plants some seed in this life or the next that is able to impact and influence them, it's all worth it just to be able to have that, that interaction that causes some kind of thinking. And he this was years ago, and I still remember this conversation so clearly. He went on to give this analogy of the moon, and he said, you look at the moon that's up there. This moon is, is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. This is a moon that's there and open for all, and so it needs to be shared and accessible to all. This is the same of the Buddhist teachings. The Buddhist teachings are are available and open to all, no matter background, skin color, ethnicity, where, where someone comes from. This is something that everyone has access to being able to follow. And we can't claim any any privilege or right in how we follow it. And so if we're doing our best to follow these teachings and this practice, and a lot of people are showing up, well, that just becomes a practice itself. And this is something that, that we get to share like the moon. So these thoughts came in my mind as I heard that 
that comment you had at the end of the the nun that acknowledged the disruption, but also went on to say that it was all worth it if if this is giving an authentic view of the the renunciate, the female renunciate nun's life in Myanmar to those that would never have access to it. So I'm wondering how that statement struck with you. Obviously, it must have had some impact if you included it in in, in the final scene of your film, but where, where that landed with you when she said that. Well, I just really appreciated her honesty uh, and and the fact that her, again, her dedication to her practice, that if somebody shows up and wants to learn about uh, the practice of the Buddhism, uh, it's her job to tell them. It's their job to do whatever they can. So uh, we, we never felt unwelcome or in any way. We, we never really, we knew it was disruptive, but we never, we never got a sense that, um, that they were unhappy that we were we were there. It was it was as if they were happy we were there. They they also got they got to do their job too, which was to teach us, to teach the world through the film. So that was um, something that they could offer, and we're happy to do do so. Hmm. And I asked about the reception in that nunnery itself, flipping that question on its head and the, the, as this film was screened to Western audiences, many of whom didn't have a lot of contact with Buddhism or Myanmar or nunneries, what, what kind of comments or learning did you find from those who saw the film and they were seeing this kind of lifestyle for the first time? What did they take away from it? Well, one of the, one of the main, main uh, comments at first was, oh my gosh, that pink. You know the pink, because the, the, it's just so vibrant. Their their robe color, the, you just see these this this pink all all over the place. That was something that people, I think really surprised people. The color of the robes, and again, I think similar to what I felt was just people feel their um, kind of the the uncloudedness of their hearts that they're really trying to live and act. You know, they they're, they're their whole bully system. And, uh, yeah, I think that's what people say. I just sort of felt um, this feeling of uh, being refreshed after after watching it or the lightness of, and you can feel their love coming through. Certainly we felt that. And I think the, some of the people in the audience would feel that too. Hmm. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, of course, you've made this film a couple of years ago. The last year has been traumatic at so many levels. And I think for all of us with any connection of any kind to Myanmar, just learning about the initial coup a year ago and then following the day-to-day, month-to-month news has just been devastating on so many levels. So I'm wondering what it's been like for you. As I ask this question, I realize it's a a a pretty obvious question that it's been hard on all of us. And so I'm sure that's the answer for you too. But I, I, I'm wondering more specifically, like how uh, to, to a country that you've been so connected to with your spiritual practice, with your travels, with the film that you made, the connections and people you've made there, uh, what has it been like being afar and learning steadily as the news gets worse and worse? Yeah, uh, it's really painful. It's because it's personal because I know I know some of the people that live there, and and but I I and then when I had read that they that nuns were not going into Mandalay and certain areas were cut off, and so just just knowing that the areas where they could get food would be would be restricted, and just kind of thinking, well, who's bringing them food, or how are they getting donations? So I'm 
it, I, I, I do worry. I worry, but I also, on the other side, side of that, feel like, well, you know, they have their practice, and it's really a strong practice, and hopefully it's going to get them through this. And um, uh, the the translator who lives in Yangon, I have not, as I mentioned, her, I haven't heard much from her. I think she left the country. Uh, I know she changed her name on her Facebook page, and she left the country for a while. I don't know if she's back. I, I don't know. I really don't know. If I, I also worry about her. I know. I know she won't be somewhere where it's dangerous, but she she's lived there for a long time. That was her home. So it's just it's really sad with uh, and then with not really knowing what's going to happen. It just keeps going, and also knowing that I don't really know what's going to happen. And I get I know I get little bits and pieces of the news, but not really. I think it's much worse than what I'm reading. So that's a little discouraging too. Yeah, that's all great to hear. And we definitely encourage listeners to check out this film. It's streaming. You could watch it for free at the Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival. Uh, you are prompted to give donations for those that are able to. Uh, the donations go to a wide range of humanitarian missions in the country. Uh, however, the films are, this one and many others, are open and accessible for all to come and watch. Uh, this is from February 1st to 13th. So uh, really encourage listeners not to miss that. There's really great and unique films there that show aspects into so many different parts of Myanmar. It's great that you have uh, allowed your film to be a part of this and to be shown. So many people can see it during during this time. And, uh, and it's been great talking to you as well and just hearing the behind the scenes of how this was made, where the idea came from, and, and some details about the process of it. I've definitely learned a lot. So thanks so much for coming on and sharing that. Well, great. Thank you so much. It was fun to talk about again. Yeah, it's close to my heart. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Being a small, mostly volunteer team, our production time for a single episode before the coup was sometimes as long as four months from start to finish. While we had worked at decreasing the lead time, the fastest we were ever able to manage was just around three weeks. Yet during this current crisis, where even a single day's event can produce such shocking news and urgent needs, we simply don't have this luxury of time. So we've worked around the clock to substantially shorten the length of our production cycle. The turnaround for some episodes now has been just 36 hours. However, we can't accomplish this goal without your support. If you found value in today's episode and think that others may also benefit from this type of content, please consider making a donation so that we can continue our mission. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. 
you can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org. And donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.